This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. Good morning again, Roger, and good morning, world, as we come your way from WGN West in Scottsdale, Arizona, at least one, maybe two more times for the year. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, 99-degree high yesterday. That is the highest temperature of the year thus far. And uh, all of the TV weather people are talking about when are we going to hit the triple-digit high. Came close yesterday. Could happen today or tomorrow. So anyway, welcome. We have a lot to talk about this morning. Max is going to check in with David Hightower of the Hightower Reports. Spending a fair amount of time in China and covering the China story as far as the African swine fever is concerned. So... Uh, He'll be discussing that with Max, and as I mentioned, one of the most interesting dairy farmers I know, who is a dairy farmer in a suburb of Phoenix at Glendale. He's a mile and a half from the football stadium where the Arizona Cardinals play football, and he has a herd of 2,000 Jersey cows inside the city limits. But uh, he has more than that, too, uh, because he's added sheep. And the last time we talked to him, that was the subject. So we're going to catch up on that this morning. And uh, Samuelson says, talking about a different trade situation than the U.S.-China trade situation. So a lot to come here on the Saturday morning show. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. It's 11 minutes after 5 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. And as I said earlier, Paul Roby is one of the most fascinating dairy farmers I know today. Many of you are familiar with that name if you're in the dairy business. He's been involved in leadership roles with Dairy Management, Inc. He's uh, part of the group called United Dairymen of Arizona and uh, one of the best promoters of milk and dairy products of any producer that I know. And last year, we spent some time at his dairy farm in uh, Glendale, Arizona, talking about the fact that he was expanding, not with dairy cows, but with sheep. And he talked about getting sheep milk to make sheep cheese. Not cheap cheese, but sheep cheese. So let's find out as I ask him this question. Paul, what has happened with sheep cheese, not cheap cheese, and the dairy industry as far as you're concerned since we last visited? Well, the sheep cheese is going fairly well. We've made some really incredible, incredible cheeses. We're, we're trying to get them marketed uh, around the valley here. We have them going into a, a few of the nice restaurants and, and in a few of the of stores and, and kind of boutique uh, places uh, as packaged uh, cheese. And uh, so we're still doing that. We've, we've, we keep gaining on 
on lambs because, as you know, they have twins. And, and so we're gaining on numbers. And we're up to about uh, 1,800 ewes right now that we have. And so we've, uh, we're, we're having our lamb meat at a number of, uh, of restaurants as well. And uh, so the sheep, the sheep uh, operation is doing uh, doing fairly well. The, the, I wish the uh, cow dairy operation was was doing as well as where where uh, the sheep is doing. Want to talk about dairy in a moment? But as I recall, when you started going into the sheep business, you started with what six hundred. Uh, well, we we started actually with less. Started with about thirty or forty that we initially started, and then grew them up. and And we had probably about four hundred of the meat sheep. When I realized that you can milk a sheep and you can make cheese out of it, and oh by the way, you still get that nice big lamb that you can fatten up and sell the meat on. So you didn't lose the meat part of the equation. It's kind of like the Holstein uh, steer is that you you can milk the cow. And you can also raise a nice piece of meat off of the steers uh, in that regard. And so consequently, um, we switched to the dairy sheep, and then we've just continued. We've basically traded those uh, those meat sheep for dairy sheep and then just kept growing them, acquiring a few, but also just coming by natural uh, growth through the through our, our lambing and through uh, having... Uh, uh, the uh, the ewe lambs continuing keeping those, and so we're, we're going to continue to keep growing it. We're not milking all of those. We're only milking about 70 right now because we don't have a big enough cheese sale market yet to uh, if we were milking all 1,800, I'd be, I'd be overflowing with milk and, and, and cheese. I was so thrilled when I saw on the menu of my favorite restaurant here in the valley, uh, Lons at Hermosa Inn, I saw the Rovi name yep. under the lamb and under the cheese. That's got to make you feel pretty good. It makes me feel really, really good. Yeah, I've had a number of my friends, they they text me with pictures of the of the menu. Hey, Rovi, you're on the menu. And so, yeah, it's really uh, it's really great that we can be there because it's 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 one of the star restaurants in the valley oh, as yeah. well as the country. Yes. He does, uh, Jeremy there does a phenomenal job with uh, preparing all the foods. And so, yes, we have the lamb on the menu. We have the uh, uh, sheep cheese on the menu and once in a while we have uh, wagyu jersey cross beef on the menu it's not on the menu but he serves it when we have enough of that we then allow him to to get that from us and it's turned out real well for him still milking cows how many? oh absolutely yep how many cows uh we're milking just shy of 2000 yep. and uh and, and you're in the city of glendale we're, we're, that's why we've stayed at milk 2000 for the last 18 or 20 years because we cannot grow and that's partly why we've started the sheep is because that gives us an opportunity for having some growth in an agricultural uh, uh, enterprise that doesn't take up much room we can do it there on the dairy uh, it's really a, an amazing symbiotic relationship between cows and sheep uh, back in the old west the cows and the sheep herders always had range wars well right. we don't have range wars on the rovi dairy uh, they, they they eat the same things they kind of react the same you milk them similarly not the same because they only have two teats instead of four but you uh, you still put them in a parlor and you milk them very similarly to a cow so there's 
a tremendous amount of very symbiotic kind of uh, relationship there with the sheep and the cows, and it works really well for us. A visit with Paul Roby, Roby Dairy in Glendale, Arizona. Paul Roby started in the dairy business in Glendale, Arizona quite a while ago. His ancestors started, of course, before he got on the planet. But uh, the dairy business has run into a major challenge, has it not, Paul? What's going on? Well, it, uh, the price is what's going on is that, uh, and it isn't an overproduction problem. It's a it's a it's a price and a marketing problem with a number of different things that have affected it, being the the tariffs and the and the and the border issues and all these other things that have affected the price and and the the EU uh, uh, intervention stocks that were there helped to to keep the price down uh, the world is actually consuming more dairy but there's plenty of production around the world both in New Zealand in the EU and the US so that's held our price down and as ever, all the dairy farmers know it's been down for like 4 years and we we really need an opportunity to get a little better price here just recently I saw news of another dispersal sale of a fourth generation dairy farm in Ohio and too much of that has been happening. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, all across the country, but even here in Arizona. Uh, uh, in 2018, we lost 10 dairy farmers out of business. And uh, we went from 60 to 50. And so that's a, a big attrition rate. Uh, we still are milking about the same amount of milk because the other dairies have filled the, the void. But we are losing dairy farmers uh, like, like the rest of the country is. We're losing them as well here in Arizona. What's happening to the California dairy farmer? You know, they've lost a tremendous amount of, of production. And I really haven't gotten a good read on, on since they became part of the federal order, whether that's helped or hurt or just kind of been the, a push. I'm not really informed on that, but uh, I know in the past uh, they have had a tremendous amount of dispersals. In fact, a friend of mine is uh, kind of in the uh, chicken uh, industry, and he, the uh, the group that he's working with uh, just purchased a dairy facility that they're going to convert from a dairy to a uh, chicken ranch, and they had this, the, the whole herd dispersal uh, just a week ago. And so they're still having uh, the, the cows leaving the leaving production string in California as well. You mentioned chickens. The cage-free situation in California continues to challenge egg producers around the country. That's right. And, and uh, the, 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 this friend of mine is helping to build the uh, uh, cage-free chicken ranches in California. And with all their regulations and everything, he, he tears what little hair he has, he tears it out uh, because of all the regulations trying to make, uh, make that, uh, the things go and to build uh, build these chicken farms but and it's actually raised the price of eggs significantly to the consumer it's amazing that uh, uh, because they then can grow the eggs, but it's a, it's at a tremendously higher cost, thereby passing that on to the consumer. So the eggs in California, I've, I haven't bought any eggs there, but I know that uh, talking to my friend, he, uh, he has said that the chicken price, the egg price is tremendously higher. 
And I would certainly agree with Paul on that because I know people who live in the San Francisco area and uh, the cage-free eggs, and that's the only eggs they can sell in California, cage-free, have sold as high as $8 a dozen. And I don't think you'll find egg prices at that retail price anywhere else in the country. Talking a little bit more about California, uh, the census numbers are fascinating. If you have about a week, maybe a month, you can go through all of it because there are over 6.4 million points of information on agriculture in the agriculture census. The results uh, were released about a week ago, uh, conducted back in uh, 2017. Average farms in California a little bigger in 2017 and worth a lot more, according to the census. The average went from acreage went from 338 to 348 acres over the five-year period. And farms' $45 billion market value of agricultural products sold in 2017 topped the $42.6 billion generated in 2012. The number of dairy farms, as we talked about, continued a trend of declines over the last two decades, driven partly by those lagging way prices that prompted farms recently to join the national marketing order. However, the milk cow inventory has remained fairly stable in California, has tallied about 1,750,000 head in the same uh, in the latest census. A big value for California agriculture coming from vegetables, melons, potatoes, and sweet potatoes. About $8.2 billion worth of uh, that of those products uh, coming to the agricultural income of California. And fruits and tree nuts together provided $17.4 billion or nearly 39% of total agricultural sales. And the number of berry farmers, um, pretty much steady, considering such industry challenges as the uh, fade-out of some of the um, crop protection chemicals that they need to use on those crops and the sharp increase in the price for that. So uh, that's kind of the census story from California and other states in the Midwest. Nevada lost farms uh, from 4,127 five years ago to 3,123 today. Oregon gained farms from 35.4 thousand in the census, uh, and uh, that's up from uh, 30 or down from 37.6. However, the state did lose some acreage involved in agriculture. So, uh, when you want to just sit down and take a look at some interesting information about the agricultural industry across the country. Uh, weighed into the 2017 Census of Agriculture. 
We're at uh, 26 minutes after 5 o'clock here on the Saturday Morning Show. We'll check the news headlines when we continue on the Saturday Morning Show. And as I mentioned, uh, we're coming to you from WGN West in Scottsdale, Arizona, where today they say the high could probably hit triple digits for the first time this year after almost making it yesterday. 99 degrees was our high yesterday with not a cloud in the sky. So uh, the locals are complaining, but I think people from other parts of the country, particularly the northern part of the country that come out here for the winter season, I think they're very happy with the weather situation that we have at the moment. We're going to uh, join Max Armstrong and his guest, David Hightower of the Hightower Reports, a little bit later on here on the Saturday morning show. But right now, we say welcome to Samuelson Says. I'm Orion, and there is another trade issue in the spotlight. I have lost count of the times I have made this statement on this program. Watching trade negotiations is like watching paint dry. It takes forever to hammer out an agreement between regions or countries and the United States dealing with trade issues. And frankly, we have focused most of our attention the past year on the trade situation between China and the United States. But there are other trade issues and negotiations to take place. And so I was fascinated by this news release that came out last week the European Union is ready to start talks on a trade agreement with the United States and aims to conclude a deal before the end of the year. That statement from European Trade Commissioner Cecilia Malmstrom. But they agreed on the issues to be discussed, but there's one issue they will not discuss in the trade negotiations, and that is agriculture. They will talk other areas of negotiation, but they will not include agriculture in the talks to reach an agreement with the U.S.-European Union. But again, as Cecilia Malmstrom said, we are ready as soon as they are. Well, reaction was quick from... Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, he's chairman of the Tax and Trade Focused Senate Finance Committee. He said a U.S.-EU trade deal that does not include agriculture is highly unlikely. Well, I hope so. I hope it's more than unlikely. I hope it's no deal. How on earth can you establish a trade agreement between major agricultural countries and not include agriculture? We have our concerns with some of the technology issues the European Union will not allow, but apparently that cannot be discussed in the trade agreement discussions. So let all of your members in Congress know, no agriculture No trade agreement with the European Union. My thoughts on Samuelson Says. 
a presentation of Tribune Radio Networks, and uh, we're coming up to 20 minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. Max Armstrong standing by with his guests to talk agricultural marketing and a little bit of focus on the China situation. That coming up when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Our studio guest this weekend, David Hightower, the Hightower Report. Uh, let's talk about China. It's hard to not talk about China when we're visiting about the, the world of markets here. What is the latest we're hearing in terms of a trade agreement? Uh, are we within a month of having some significant announcement? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I do think, though, that it's evolving in which there may be key points that will be taken by the markets as to be a reality. Um, by this, by that, maybe even a change in what's tariffed and what's not. So it could it could maybe end it for the markets we care about. As far as agriculture is concerned. Exactly. The sticking points, of course, have been basically, what, copyrights, and policing, any kind of an agreement, but there's some indication maybe they're working their way through those, David? Yeah, and I think a little bit on the compliance and the back-checking and so forth. And I, and I also think that uh, maybe the U.S. is trying to hold out to really drive down what any residual tariffs would be. I mean, we're, we're maybe further off from zero tariffs uh, than maybe what the market uh, expects. Let's talk about the hog situation. As far as their hog herd is concerned, uh, solid information from those people, from the Chinese themselves, has been hard to come by, has it not? Well, and it has, and I think over the last several weeks, we've seen a uh, clamping down on uh, allowing the negative news to uh, come out of China. Uh, we have seen, uh, naturally, an escalation. I think a bank out of Europe indicated that maybe a 30% loss in the hog herd. And, you know, in the market, we have anywhere from 1 million hogs lost to as much as 200 million hogs. And maybe 150 million might be more appropriate when you look over it couple-year basis. That's a wide range. It really is, and it's it's going to be in the upper end of that uh, targeting because we had the same similar situation in Russia, uh, maybe even worse in China because of the diversified, spread-out geographical production area. Uh, and, you know, you saw a 16% reduction there, so that's an easy hurdle for the current problem. While we tend to focus on China, and that's where the hogs are, other countries are going through this too, are they not? And that's going to contribute to the global pork deficit? Yeah, and I've, I've been in uh, Vietnam, um, Bangkok uh, recently, and they are uh, very concerned about it. Uh, even, even China came out uh, today indicating that uh, the problem may be severe enough that the, the world just won't be able to meet that supply. So that's kind of a new revelation by them. What is the capability of substitution then to the degree that poultry, which of course could be ramped up dramatically quickly, and then beef, certainly that's a longer term answer, but... Will the Chinese readily embrace these other meats? Um, I think I think so. I mean, the transition was already there, and we already saw farms uh, for poultry, massive farms. Uh, they, so they already started to expand to that area. But I think this will be a seminal point in history in which we'll transition from fresh meat consumption in China to frozen meat. And I also think there's been a very low per capita consumption of beef, and this is going to open the door. We're already seeing a huge increase in the exports to China, and I think this is uh, going to be proved to be a pivot point in the, in the future. So the beef industry, the global beef industry on down the road, could really benefit long-term from this crisis for pork. And looking at 10 other commodity markets, uh, consistently the world has underestimated 
just exactly how much and how quickly uh, consumption of commodities can ramp up. Let's talk about uh, the diminished soybean demand that that might mean on down the road. What's your anticipation there? They'll need less beans from the world, you would think, if they have a diminished hog herd. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, and they're dumping pork on the market now, so it's a double whammy, uh, when it comes to the short term. But, um, I think that over the long term, they're going to have to rebuild it and they're going to have to eat something in the interim. Uh, so, uh, and as for trade, uh, it's not necessarily how much they buy from us, it's how much do they buy overall. So, um, I think, and the markets are futures. Uh, so we've already factored that into prices, and maybe we'll finish factoring that in in the next month. How bearish are you on the soybean market? Uh, I'm not. Um, uh, I, I really think that uh, the market has done a, uh, more than enough fa- factoring of this. And uh, we've had now two cycles in which we expected record supply. So uh, I really think that uh, the, the low prices uh, take place at the period of high supply. And we're already generally looking forward through this crop and expecting a large crop. Well, if you're not bearish soybeans, are you friendly corn then? Well, no, I'm bearish soybeans. I'm just, I don't have the dire projections. And I would even suggest that uh, not to hedge corn uh, if you're an annual type of guy or use soybean puts to hedge corn. (laughs) And I would also suggest that I might be interested in selling futures as a corn hedge just because uh, when we do get it in the ground, which we always do, and we can do it quickly, there'll be a reaction. And I think that could be the low of the year. So I'd either not hedge corn, hedge it for the next three weeks or buy puts and uh, and beans and protect it for the year. It's a big what if to be sure, but what if we were to see some significant progress announced on trade along about the time we're getting some planting delays. That would be a spike that the producer would really need to seize, wouldn't it? Exactly, and and just a change in psychology would take place when we have a record uh, managed money net short in corn futures. And, you know, I want to bring something up. We're seeing a resurgence of uh, biofuel, not only in China with the uh, projections for a massive expansion, uh, which may burn up to an additional 350 million bushels of U.S. corn. We're now seeing mandates for biodiesel throughout Southeast Asia. Been there a lot. We're seeing it take place. A little bit of a reduction in what can be exported in terms of palm oil. That could change the complexion of the soybean market. Soybeans could wind up in that part of the world to produce fuel then, you're saying. Uh, Exactly. Well, no, uh, more appropriately, it would be that the palm oil supply would be used in that area. Then that uh, supply would not be competing with soybean oil in the rest of the world. And if you take a little bit out of palm oil, bean oil, canola oil, all those other edible oils, they can't possibly make up for that shortage. So for all of the hand-wringing we have here at home about our biofuels industry, don't get too bearish on it because of the global response, you're saying. Exactly. And, you know, there's industrial use, but then there's use for fuel. And you can quite literally burn a lot of supply quickly with that kind of use. Will we see an increase in our domestic biofuels processing capability? Or is it just going to be tapped off here and then we'll... uh, We'll just be able to take advantage of the global demand for biofuels elsewhere. Well, I mean, I think corn uh, consumption for fuel will be slower. Um, we have to go to something like E15 or something. So you may get a lift out of that. But keep in mind that uh, recycled oil, recycled vegetable oil right now is uh, at a significant premium to soybean oil. And now it's profitable for the first time in five years to actually make biodiesel out of soybean oil. So that's kind of a, uh, a support underneath the market. 
We know, of course, so well from recent history that we can plant the corn crop in the United States so quickly. It takes a very little of a window to do that if we get that dry weather. What are you hearing, though, from forecasters? What are you anticipating in terms of possible planting delays here? You know, on one hand, uh, we've become so used to getting it in really early, uh, and it would seem like there's a lot of threats with flooding, wet, cold, etc., uh, but the trade's already factored in a good crop year. So it's kind of a collision of reality and, and expectation. So I don't know. I have to go with the odds, and I have to say we usually get it in. Uh, what's the statistic? We can get 55% in in a week or something like that. So uh, the odds suggest that's why I would hedge corn in the short term because they'll probably get it in. If we get out to uh, the 30th of April here and we have maybe only 20% of the corn crop in the ground, is is that is that Certainly friendly to the market. Absolutely. And the divergence that would take place between corn and soybean prices in that event would be massive uh, because the rotation into beans already would worsen an already bad balance sheet. Well, it's an interesting point to ponder and not unrealistic. We're only 12 days away from the end of April here, and we haven't turned a wheel to a great extent in many, many areas of the Corn Belt of the United States. We see these social media shots here and there, but there's a lot to be done yet, isn't there? Yeah, but from a market technical kind of mechanical perspective, when you have a record short by the funds, you can get one of those moves in prices where people say this doesn't uh, justify with the fundamentals because all those people change their negative view into positive. It puts a lot of buying into the market. So a psychological uh, rotation in sentiment could result in a, in a pretty big, maybe an outsized reaction in corn prices. So it's not insignificant. When it happens, it can be quick and short-lived, correct? And uh, that should be an opportunity to act on. David, nice to have you here as always. We sure appreciate it. Thank you. David Hightower, the Hightower Report. David Hightower, in his visit a few minutes ago with uh, Max, uh, referred briefly to the situation on pork demand and prices growing in China because of the African swine fever. I would like to share more of that story with you because it was in the South China Morning Post this week. And this is what the story had to say. China faces a shortage of pork later this year that it may be unable to fill because of the African swine fever epidemic. Financial services firm Rabobank estimated the country could lose up to 200 million pigs to disease or slaughter during the epidemic. That's almost three times the total pig population in the United States. The senior analyst with Rabobank, Pan Chen Jun, said... A lot of herds will disappear due to infection and liquidation. There will be a great shortage. We don't think any country in the world or the whole world combined could cover this supply gap. Even after increasing imports, there will remain a supply shortage. We've mentioned this number several times during this ongoing story. China, the world's biggest pork producer, with roughly 433 million hogs, according to USDA. That number, of course, before the African swine fever outbreak. And the latest information from the U.S. Food and Agricultural Organization shows more than a million pigs have been culled uh, since the outbreak 
was detected. Again, we repeat, as we always do, African swine fever cannot be transmitted to humans, but it is fatal to pigs and boars, and thus far, no vaccine available. In the week uh, ending March 7th, China bought 23,846 tons of U.S. pork, That's about eight times the amount purchased a week earlier, according to USDA. So this is an ongoing story, and it's a story that we'll have to continue to watch carefully. It was a four-day trading week uh, because of the Good Friday observance that closed markets yesterday here in the United States. So uh, we go back to the Thursday close now to uh, see the numbers that we'll be starting with On Monday morning at the Chicago Board of Trade, the July wheat contract will start the week at 4.48 and a quarter after dropping half a cent on Friday. July corn was unchanged, so it'll start at 3.67 and a half. And the July soybean contract gained two cents on Thursday. It will start trading next week at $8.94 and a quarter cents a bushel. Uh, grains, soybeans particularly, uh, turning higher after dropping to a five-month low. Turning to the livestock trade, uh, we did get the uh, USDA monthly cattle on feed report before the market closed on Thursday, and these are the numbers. USDA estimating the number of cattle on feed April 1st up 2% from a year ago. The number of cattle placed on feed in March up 5% from a year ago, and the number of cattle marketed in March down 3% from a year ago. So the total number of cattle on feed at the moment, well, on the 1st of April, stood at 11,964,000 head. And uh, we're... Uh, getting ready to uh, hopefully deal with the North American Free Trade Agreement, get the approval of that through Congress, and uh, get that in place with Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. And as we said in Samuelson Says, the European Union wants to start and complete the uh, EU-U.S. trade agreement by the end of the year. So, If they get that done, it'll be a major accomplishment. And uh, as I said earlier, they'll not be discussing agriculture in that uh, discussion to put together a trade agreement between the U.S. and the European Union. So a lot going on in addition to watching the weather and watching the wet fields preventing planting. But as uh, David Hightower and Max said earlier, we have proven over the years that uh, we can plant a tremendous amount of corn in the Midwest. If the soil dries and the weather clears, we can do more than half of the corn crop planting in a week. That's thanks to technology, thanks to the equipment we're now dealing with in the world of agriculture. 
So a uh, lot going on as we get ready for the summer season of festivals and county fairs and state fairs. And we look forward to being a part of many of those events. Oh, and we're going to be back in time for the opening of Arlington Park Racecourse. That will happen on May 4th, and we look forward to being there for that because horses are part of agriculture. I never appreciated them on the farm, but I do appreciate them on the racetrack. Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720. 